The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. One thing I've been noticing since the pandemic began in media, news, social media, and the public discourse is really an increasing awareness of mental health, an increasing conversation volume about mental health and how it affects us. And that is great. And it's a huge purpose of this show. Another purpose of this show is to talk about the unique ways mental health issues, neurodiversity, can actually help people succeed and thrive in their careers. But as much as anxiety or other struggles might drive someone to succeed, there are many mental health issues that can arise because of a life that you feel like you didn't quite get. Opportunities missed out on, anxiety that comes from feeling stuck in your life and your career and wanting things to be different. The big what ifs. That's a bit of the storyline behind a show that I became obsessed with recently, Mr. Corman on Apple TV+. It's a story about a fifth grade teacher, Mr. Corman, as he deals with loneliness, depression, and dreams unfilled. As channeled by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who plays him, Corman experiences anxiety on screen in such a real and touching way. I really felt so seen. He goes, it just makes me feel small. Oh, my God. I know. I just love him. He's, he's such a heartfelt, thoughtful guy. Does the universe make you feel small? Yeah. Doesn't it for you? Well, that's not the main thing I feel when I look at that picture. You know the big picture? Yeah, dude. I grew up here. I've been to the Griffith Observatory. Right, right, right. right. I love the big picture. Mm, so do I. But you just said it makes you feel small. It does. You know, anxiety can cause us to be narcissistic. It can drive the people around us up the wall. But it can also make us really sweet and vulnerable and deeply human. And that comes out in Mr. Corman. So I'm super excited today to kick off season five with actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who not only plays the title role in the series, he also wrote and directed it. And as Gordon-Levitt will tell us, he's actually a manager and an executive, even though he's a Hollywood star. So we'll talk about that. Gordon-Levitt says Mr. Corman is actually one of his most personal projects he's ever done. Hi, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Hello. How are you, Maura? <laughs> it is so cool to have you on the show. You have said that this is the most me-ish, I'm not sure that's a word, but I like it, me-ish project you've ever done and why? I guess a lot of it has to do with the just the aesthetics of it. Um, it's very much to my taste in terms of what it looks like and what it sounds like and, you know, the music and everything else, the acting, the humor. Um, it's very dry humor, which is tends to be what makes me laugh. But 
I think it's also probably me-ish in that uh, the story sort of started with with me. Uh, Mr. Corman, uh, Josh Corman, he's he's not me. I'm not playing myself, but he's sort of a a version of myself in that the beginning of this character was me thinking about my own life and how things could have been differently, uh, mm-hmm. feeling incredibly grateful for so many things, incredibly grateful for having met my partner that I love so much and we have our kids and I've had two great parents and I get to do work that I care about and I'm healthy and I live in a safe place. I'm grateful for so many things. I also think that a lot of those things just come down to luck. Hmm. I I wonder about that all the time and I started writing about it and and writing about, well, what if my luck had been different in this case or that case? What if I hadn't met my partner? What if I just hadn't met the right person for me yet? Or what if one of my parents was more of a of a chaotic personality and less supportive and positive? Or what if I, I didn't get the lucky breaks to uh, get to earn a living as an artist? What would I do? And uh, I've always really admired teachers and been drawn to that. And so I made him a teacher. And you know, these this is the kind of process that, that um, resulted in this character of Josh Corman, which sounds sort of like Joseph Gordon. It does, yeah. Yeah, and and that's uh, that's perhaps another reason why I called this show um, Me-ish, which is a word. You can look it up. Okay, challenge accepted. I, I um, just lied. That was, that was a lie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny because because I, I think I think a lot of people who are sort of anxious overthinkers in life might have this sense of what if. Um, and there was an interview with you in the New York Times, and, and the reporter I think said, "From gratitude, your gratitude sprang a sort of existential anxiety, right? Like this, what if? Was there any piece of this that came from like uh, that feeling of 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 an anxious place, or, or was it more curiosity, or was it both?" Well, I think probably both to be fair, but yeah, for sure. A lot of it came from an anxious place. I think a a lot of, a lot of times when I'm writing, it's, I'm trying to calm my mind down. (laughs) um, Our brains are built to do that, right? Our ancestors, our biological ancestors running around in the wild had to constantly be on the lookout for what was going to kill them. Weirdly, we now live in, or I should say some of us, all of us should, but only some of us do live in materially comfortable lives where we don't have to worry about something jumping out of the bushes to eat us. And we don't have to worry about where we're going to get our next meal, etc. And so our brains evolved to foresee problems, but the problems that, that our brains are are evolved to see aren't really part of our lives anymore. Uh, and so we find other problems <laughs> to, <laughs> to focus on. And, uh, and then we write them down and tell stories about them. It's so true. It's so true. My husband always says, well, if you get over that one anxiety, your anxiety is just going to go someplace else because Definitely. that's how your brain works. It's like seeking. There's no, there's no tiger jumping out from the yep. bush, but it's, it's true. Well, so you, you've, you've talked about, this is a show about leadership and anxiety and mental illness and mental health. You have said that you struggle with anxiety. I don't think you have a clinical diagnosis, but 
it seems like you consider yourself an anxious person. And I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. curious how that manifests. Like, what's, And there what's you your have my sense of humor. For some reason, <laughs> that makes me laugh when you say that. And if that makes you laugh, too, then you'll laugh a lot when you watch Mr. Corman. Um, do I consider myself an anxious person? I, it wouldn't be the first word I'd use to describe myself. But if I'm honest, it would definitely have to be in there. And you're, you're right. I, um, I did go talk to a doctor about it one time a couple years ago, and I, I don't have a diagnosable anxiety disorder, but I, I think a lot of us have, you know, there's, you know, there's a gradient here. I do have a number of people in my life who I'm very close with, who I care about a lot, who do have um, more diagnosable uh, anxiety that they, that they struggle through. And it's incredibly common, as I guess anybody listening to this might know. I learned that one out of every six people in the United States is is going through a diagnosable anxiety disorder, and and that's just the diagnosable kind. So there's a lot more than people like me who who you know might not come away with that kind of diagnosis, but are still wrestling with some some feelings. And part of what I wanted to do with Mr. Corman was destigmatize it. Um, and obviously one show is not going to do that. So I, but I mean, do my small part to help move the conversation forward and destigmatizing it. It seems like we're moving in that direction in our culture. And that's a great thing. Um, historically there's such a stigma that people don't want to talk about, uh, feelings of anxiety because they'll be told, Hey, quit whining. Hey, buck up, you know, Hey, get a grip be more positive, quit complaining. Well, that's what Josh's mom kind of tells him. Yeah, she, she does not, not, you know, I mean, she, she, her reaction is, is not entirely, um, perfect, but I'll also say, I don't think, I don't think Josh is blameless. He is. and, And I think probably a lot of anxiety is complicated and there is a degree to which you can't do anything about it. It's just a disorder. And but there is also Josh. Josh is guilty of of perpetuating a negative attitude in addition to the anxiety that he's going through. And and I think that that complexity is part of what makes it so hard to to deal with. You know, I, I did show this uh, script and get input f- uh, from uh, a uh, a doctor of neuropsychology, um, and she did say yes. I would say based on this script, probably you know. I'd have to really talk to him more to make a real diagnosis, but it seems like he exhibits a lot of the same things that, uh, that people do have. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that's a, that's a really tough one to parse. And that's, that's part of what's to me really interesting and complicated about the story. So you've had a long career in Hollywood, but you're also, from what I've read about you, you're creative, you like to make music, you you act and direct and produce and write. How have you learned, maybe as someone who is a, an overthinker and, and, and anxious, to separate the love of the craft from all the pressures? I can't even imagine what it's like to have to manage your career in Hollywood, like how stressful that could be. Yeah, I... It's a good, it's a, it's a good point. And you're, you're making, I think the right distinction that there's the art and creativity, and then there's the show business part and they occasionally overlap somewhat, <laughs> but, um, mostly to me, it's, it's important to 
guard and to separate the art part of it. How have you learned how to do that? Like, what, how have you taught yourself to do that? Good question. The first thing that comes to mind is acting on a set is something I've been doing ever since I was a little kid. Mm. And so I think I've drawn a lot of skills from doing that that are beyond just the acting part. One of the things you have to do on a set is focus. Mm. You're surrounded by distractions. You're trying to embody a character who's standing in a room with, for example, one person and having an important emotional conversation with that person. But in reality, you're not in a room with one person. You're in a room with like 20 people Mm -hmm. and all these lights and a camera and a microphone and you have to tune all of them out. And by the way, all those people are just making tons of noise (laughs) doing, doing their work so that we can make the movie all right up until five seconds before you have to start the scene. You know, everyone's making all this noise and then suddenly someone says, rolling. And then they say, speed, marker, and action. And those words to me have (laughs) have become like almost a a sort of a magic spell where I'm able to just kind of tune all that stuff out. All of it just goes away. And that's a skill that I think I probably apply not just on set when I'm acting when you're asking how do you just focus on uh, on your own self-expression and how do you tune out the voices in your head saying like, oh, you got to think about uh, your career. You got to think about your momentum, your heat, your blah, exactly. blah, blah. Uh, well, and, and also other people probably judging you all the time and, you know, uh, solicit, you know, giving unsolicited advice and people just managing you. I would imagine there's just a lot of like relationship management that comes with being a star? Um, I mean, I, I, again, I've been doing it a long time. And so I, I've, the people that I'm, that I work closely with, I think are all, I'm lucky that I've, um, I've been able to surround myself with a bunch of really good people that are kind and understanding. Like, for example, when I became a dad, I took a bunch of time off work. I, I didn't set foot on a set for two years. And that was the longest I'd ever gone ever since being six years old. And my agent at the time, you might expect a cliche agent to be like, don't do it. You'll lose all your heat. Um, uh, but he, uh, he, he really didn't do that at all. And, and he, he, he played it so perfectly. He was honest with me, but completely supportive and warm and, 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 and said, look, as your agent, it's my job to tell you that, of course, there will be consequences to your career for doing this. But as your friend and someone, you know, I've known you for decades and I care about you, you should absolutely do what you feel like you should do and go be a dad and we'll figure it out when you want to come back. And um, he was right. He was right about all of it. Uh, my career did uh, suffer from it, I guess you could say. I mean, I wouldn't say horribly. I was still able to make Mr. Corman. So, uh, you know, I couldn't really ask for more than that. But there's definitely uh, a plenty of opportunities that were coming to me that stopped coming. And, you know, is that stressful? 
In moments, yeah, I definitely have my moments where I'm like, you know, I can't believe that I, I let that happen. I had this incredible opportunity and I, I was, you know, I, I thought I was invincible. I, I didn't think that, you know, there'd be, but I knew because Warren told me <laughs> what would happen and, and, uh, and ultimately it was a hundred percent worth it. Like I, I'm, I'm so, so happy that I was able to spend more time with my family and, you know, the, the stress it comes and goes. I love that he told you that. Honestly, I think it's, you know, I wish I wish more people in corporate America would say that, right? Because he sort of laid it out to you. He gave you the stakes and he allowed you to make a, a good decision. It sounds mm-hmm. like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Ra- radical candor. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Corman, it seems, I mean, he's a bit of a catastrophist. Like, you know, I, I definitely am as well. I mean, he 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 goes to the deep dark places and did you did you purposely draw on that for him is that something that you had experienced did you think it was important um to show that element oh yeah <laughs> that, that's that's uh i think that's part of my mind for sure and um you know i guess it's it's maybe drawn from the same place that that why I like to tell stories or whatever is, you know, if you've got that muscle going in your mind that tells stories, you will make up uh, catastrophic stories about horrible things that could happen. Hi, I'm Kwame Christian, CEO of the American Negotiation Institute, and I have a quick question for you. When was the last time you had a difficult conversation? These conversations happen all the time, and that's exactly why you should listen to Negotiate Anything, the number one negotiation podcast in the world. We produce episodes every single day to help you lead, persuade, and resolve conflicts both at work and at home. So level up your negotiation skills by making Negotiate Anything part of your daily routine. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. I have to say that for me, there were two scenes that felt so true to me as an anxious person. And they were very subtle. But the first one was when um, he's driving on the freeway. I lived in LA for two years. I'm an East Coaster. But I lived in LA for two years. And the freeway was seriously an impediment to my life because I would get so ridden with anxiety. And and you have a scene where Josh is driving with his mom. I feel like it's on the 405 because they're heading up to Valencia. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, and, right. and he's driving super slow and he's super anxious. And his mom's his mom asks him about it. And I'm is do you get anxious driving on the freeway? That scene felt so true. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes do. Uh, I really can't wait for self-driving cars. Oh <laughs> the other scene that made me really cry was he is, he goes to a breathing class. Yeah. Was that scene about loneliness and wanting to connect? Yeah, that's, I think you said it really well. Um, it, this is the episode that, and it's early in the season uh, that focuses most on Josh's anxiety. Yeah. And throughout he's sort of trying to, connect with people and 
failing, failing over and over again to kind of have a, a resonant and meaningful connection with another person. And that's in many cases his own fault. And then in other cases, maybe not his fault. Um, but he's also just, he's, he's feeling really anxious and, and, uh, early in the episode, someone says, have you tried focus on your breathing? And he gets really angry and, and sort of flies off the handle at them. But by the end of the episode, when Victor, his caring friend, his happy gene caring friend has sort of said to him, Hey, I'm not going to leave you alone until you do something to deal with this. And, uh, and he says that because Josh has been saying very negative things and even sort of, uh, joked about suicide, um, which Victor does not take lightly and, and he's being a caring friend. And so out of other options, Josh does go to this breathing class that he's really reticent to go to. It's not the kind of thing he would usually go do. And unexpectedly, it's, I don't think it's, it's, it's not really the breathing or the class that, that helps him, but he ends up sitting next to, um, a woman, an older woman. And she only says a very brief thing. They're sort of going around the circle and talking and, uh, and she just says, I was feeling very alone today. And, uh, and in just such a simple and honest moment, he, he sort of feels like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he reaches out funny. for her hand. Like it's, it's so moving. Yeah. So later when they're, when they're, when they're lying together, sort of trying to do the breathing, he sees that she's, she's crying about something. Um, and he doesn't even know what he doesn't, he doesn't say like, Hey, what are you crying about? He doesn't try to solve her problem or cheer her up or, uh, or anything like that. He just, yeah, they just kind of hold each other's hand and, and are lying there together. And, mm. you know, sometimes maybe that's, that's what it takes. Um, uh, you know, you can't necessarily solve the problem, but you can just be there for someone else. That's, like I said, I, I have, I have a number of people that are, um, that I care about a lot that, uh, that struggle through anxiety. And what I have found is that it doesn't usually help to try to solve a problem. The, the best thing I can usually do is just kind of be there for them. What, what has being immersed in this show taught you? And does it, does it, change maybe even how you're thinking about being a parent and I think your kids are little so the emotions are different right (laughs) Mm -hmm. but are you seeing human nature differently I guess is my question yeah it's a good question um well a lot of the show is is about luck versus choice which is another way of saying um what are the things that you can control and what are the things that you can't control Mm -hmm. and emotions are a, are a funny one because uh, as as we've been talking about some of them you can't control and some of them you can it's not really simple my whole skill like what I'm really good at is controlling my emotions that's what acting is in a lot of ways but I certainly um, can't just control them with the snap of the fingers and the truth about acting is um, you don't just turn emotions on and off with a switch. I don't know. Like maybe some actors can do that, but it's not how 
why do it? Um, if you want the emotions to really ring true to an audience, you have to really feel them. And to really feel them, you have to kind of work your way into them. And so if I'm going to do a, a certain scene that's, for example, if someone's, if the character's going through something emotionally intense, I can't just show up to work and be like, oh, hey, how's it going? Did you see the Lakers last night? Blah, blah, blah. And then, and then say action and like all of a sudden be feeling that. The, the skill of, um, of acting and, and bringing those emotions into a scene has more to do with, uh, it's, it's not exactly fakery. It's, it's more kind of just knowing myself enough and, and paying attention to how I'm feeling enough and sort of gently nudging it um, throughout however long a time period it takes. Um, but oftentimes it's like, it's an all day thing waking up, knowing I'm going to do this scene and, and just kind of, you can't force it. If you force it, it'll look forced to an audience, but you're just kind of just gently, barely nudging it this way or that way with various tools or techniques, focusing my mind on, you know, given experiences or memories or stories or listening to music or, or, you know, doing physical exercise even, or any number of things that I, that I do sometimes to kind of just nudge my emotions in one direction or another. How do you do that if you want to have a good day with your kids and your wife, but like you have to go play a scene where your character's in crisis? How do you balance that? Um, yeah, it's funny. You're picking up on, I, I said, it starts when I wake up. Uh, since being a dad, it doesn't start when I wake up. Um, <laughs> it used to when I was, when I was before that. But, yeah. um, but now it starts when I walk out the door. That's really disciplined. I, it's so funny what you're telling me because you're talking about being incredibly mindful, right? And mindfulness is obviously a huge skill, but it sounds like part of your tradecraft is mindfulness. That's interesting. It's an interesting way to put it. I mean, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, but you're absolutely right that a, that a part of the what it what it means to to act is paying a lot of attention to how I'm feeling. When you played a tightrope walker, <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you summon that level? I read that you actually did it, which is terrifying. How did you summon that level of mental toughness and steeliness? Well, just to clarify, I, uh, I did learn to walk on a wire, but the wire I was walking on was 12 feet in the air. Uh, the guy I was playing walked on a high wire between the two towers of the World Trade Center, which okay, I did okay. not do in the slightest. Um, he, he risked his life. I did not. Um, but uh, I, I identified a lot with, with that. I, I, you, know, you don't risk your life when you, uh, when you act. But, um, you know, for example, I, I got to do... Uh, Saturday Night Live a couple times and that feels very much like a high wire act because Ooh. it's you're on live television and so <laughs> you can really mess up yes. and uh and you have to not mess up and yeah the adrenaline is incredibly intense uh it's probably more exhilarating than than any experience I've had in my working life because it's that component of live television um and also because SNL is like a, 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 a pillar in my mind and upbringing that was very meaningful to me. Do you feel like when you put something out there that's more personal, it, it's, it's, it's more of a high wire act or does that not matter? 
to you? Like like something that you've written and created versus something that you may maybe just act in. Not that I'm minimizing acting, but you know what I mean. For sure. No, I I think it it definitely does. And um so so putting Mr. Corman out into the world, yeah, definitely feels like higher stakes and um I I definitely feel more sensitive to both sides when people like it that's you know are liking it is putting it lightly when mm. people say things like some of the lovely things you've said today that I'm very grateful for like that it really resonates or it feels validating or it feels um relatable or illuminating i mean that's like it means the world to me when i when i hear people tell me that and and on the flip side when people say that they don't like it or that it, it or they say other negative things that's like it's really painful mm. um but, um, <laughs> you know, I, again, I, I feel like that's not something I want to shy away from. Of course, none of us want negativity in our lives, but I think <laughs> you're always gonna have some, if you're trying anything, Yeah. if you're, if you're trying anything, you're going to risk some, there's some risk and there's going to be some failure and there's going to be some, uh, some some people or voices that that say you suck and that you know that's uh that's just par for the course i love that so 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 you sort of try to keep like a just a learning mindset like okay i'm going to take the feedback but i'm going to keep going yeah if if you can uh yeah. if you can not dismiss the feedback that's i think really elevated i i i do my best to do that and um you know, I think if fingers crossed, don't know if I'm if we'll make a second season of Mr. Corman. Um, but I actually find like some of the some of the negative things that people have said, not all of them, but some of them, I actually think have been constructive for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we'll be able to make a, a second season that um, is better than the first. I really applaud that. It, I don't know that it's wise to listen to negativity. I think the the most constructive feedback comes from people who are doing it caringly. And uh, not everybody is caring in their criticism. That's that's the understatement of the century. Yeah. But, but it seems to me like you've never been scared to explore whether it's um, <laughs> you made a movie called Manic, right? Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> that was a pretty stark portrayal. And uh, your film Don John, which I think was the first movie you directed, was about a porn addict. Like mm-hmm. you're not scared of exploring things that make people uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, those are the movies that I like the best. Usually, <laughs> I, uh, I I I definitely understand the desire for light entertainment. Personally, maybe it's just my own uh, my own relationship with the medium because I have spent my life on it. Light entertainment. Um, if I want to escape or turn my mind off, like watching a movie or a show doesn't work that well for me. I'll do other things um, if I if I want some light entertainment, um, like maybe watch sports or watch like Shark Tank or um, <laughs> or uh, yeah. listen to some music or if I want if I want to just like kind of relax. But if if I'm if I'm gonna watch a story in a movie or a show or something like that, the ones that really hold my interest are the ones that are are really getting in there and are gonna challenge me and are going to you know uh, make me feel strong feelings or make me have to consider something I might not have thought of before. My last question for you is a question I ask of 
most of my guests now, they're mostly like corporate executives and CEOs, but I'm going to ask it of you because I would assume that you manage people, right? You have people in your life, people on your team, people who you work with. How has the experience of making Mr. Corman, of going so deep into anxiety specifically, changed how you're going to be as a, as a leader and a manager going forward? Well, you're right. I mean, when, when directing Mr. Corman, certainly I'm, it's, you don't usually use the word manager, but it is what you're doing. You're leading a team of people, big time, cast and a crew. And, and I also, um, run a company called hit record. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not the sole runner of it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of part-time at it because I do other things, but uh, I am in a leadership position and we, we have 40 employees at this point. And, and so I've, uh, I've spent the last few years because our company has grown. I've spent the last few years learning more explicitly about what it means to manage. Uh, and like, like I mentioned earlier, I read radical candor. Um, <laughs> so how is Corman, how is Mr. Corman uh, affected that? I think that the, the feelings and experiences that the character is going through are things that I've, I've lived and I've known about my whole life, but doing the show has made me really focus on it. And I think that's been very helpful, especially nowadays, because everyone's anxiety is on the rise in this in these extraordinary times during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's helped me be more empathetic and and really try to put myself in the shoes of the people that I'm working with and what they're feeling, which to me is that's what being a good leader is. You're all making something together, but you you can't just think about, all right, I'm making this thing and all these people are going to help me. Like, I have to think about who are, okay, all those people, they're all people. (laughs) They're they're a person just as much as I'm a person. They all have their feelings just as much as I have my feelings. And they all um, want things just as much as I want things. What is it that they want? What is it that they're feeling? How can I help them? And how can, how can this be a positive experience holistically for them in their life, um, professionally and personally, because that's when they're going to not because, because that's the right thing to do, (laughs) but also because, uh, that is when everyone will do their best work. And, and I don't think it's, it's like, I think those are kind of two sides of the same coin Mm. that if, if, uh, if your work is coming from a, a place of sincerity, it's not insincere to want everybody to do good work and everybody getting to do good work is, is sort of one and the same with everybody leading a good life and, and being good people and, and finding meaning and happiness in the, the time that we spend alive. So, uh, I don't know. So I guess that just comes down to, yeah, treating people like whole people. I like it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I wish you good health and uh, great work and all the good things. Thank you, Maura. It's really great talking to you. That's it for today's show. Thank you to my producer, Mary Dew. Thanks to the team at HBR. I'm grateful to our guests for sharing their experiences and truths. For you, our listeners, who ask me to cover certain items and keep the feedback coming, please do send me feedback. You can email me. You can uh, leave a message on LinkedIn for me or tweet me at Mora AM. 
And if you love the show, tell your friends. Subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Maura Aaron's Mealy. Mealy.